really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. Glad to have you along with us uh, this morning and for the next hour. We're going to be talking with Dr. Lori Quigley. Uh, Dr. Quigley, we've got a a lot of different uh, titles to to give to you, but the the one of current import for you is Interim President of Medai College or Medai University. And thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. Uh, Dr. Quigley also is a, a member of the Seneca Nation Wolf Clan. And as of last Monday was the chairwoman for the uh, board of directors for the Seneca Gaming Corporation. Uh, just a little too busy right now to deal with all that? Yes. I uh, can only handle so much <laughs> because I also serve on other boards as well. Right. So I really do believe in giving back, and it's that, that is important to me. Yeah, as a matter of fact, as we were talking here beforehand, how many different areas your current work does touch upon, and I want to get into all that. And we're going to talk about a lot of uh, indigenous issues that are in issues involving indigenous people, for sure. But I want to start off with, with a question that I finished with Dr. Uh, Jason Corwin yesterday from the University of Buffalo uh, Indus- Indigenous Studies Department. I asked him this, when, and I didn't say if, but I said when, when the greater American society comes to understanding indigenous populations, what is... What's the hope? What's the optimism? What are we going to see when we, when we as a society get there? Because I know there's a long way to go, and we're going to kind of get into that as we move through. But what's the value in that? I think that's a really huge question. All right. And, and I would say that for me personally, uh, if the American public could just acknowledge, number one, our current existence, and number two, the history that we have from our perspective— I don't really think that we really in this country have acknowledged that from our perspective, we see Thanksgiving as something different. From our perspective, uh, land loss, okay, and and what that has done. From our perspective, you know, the residential boarding school era that, uh, as far as I know, no other, you know, uh, racial ethnic group in this country has ever gone through. And, you know, the generational impact that that has left on our communities to this day. The importance for us of maintaining our indigenous languages, of maintaining our sovereign territories is huge. And I don't think that the American public can really fully appreciate and understand that yet. And I hope that hopefully, you know, some of the history books will be rewritten and include our perspective, um, which uh, I have seen in my career is not there yet. All right. I think they're starting that, starting to get there, but we certainly have a long ways to go. Yeah, I was sharing with you how um, recently I spent a couple of hours on a at an event out at the Tonawanda Seneca, Seneca Nation, and 
the many discoveries that I made during that time, people were, were sharing with me the differences. And I, I think that is really interesting. There is really almost a, a complete ignorance when it comes to indigenous populations in, in the United States, correct? Most definitely. I remember years ago, um, I was presenting at a, a national teacher education conference on some curricular work that I was doing in indigenous education and history. And a lot of it had to, to deal with some of the uh, work I was doing with language teachers here in Western New York, indigenous language teachers. And I would get questions like, oh, I didn't know that there were still Native Americans wherever. I didn't know that you had different languages. Well, we had 500 and some different languages prior to European arrival. And now we're down to maybe 250 languages uh, that are still spoken. And to, that lack of understanding just in teachers says a lot. Absolutely. The country makes up. Uh, with that regard. And uh, it's also interesting uh, to note and we can get into so many different things, and I definitely want to talk about boarding schools, but there's just also even just the displacement of Native people throughout the, the last couple of centuries, obviously since you know the, the uh, forming of the United States, and also some of the victories that have been achieved by local indigenous peoples, and in, you know, whether it's the Tonawanda Seneca Nation or the Seneca Nation itself. Uh, maybe just a little bit of an overview in that regard, just so we can kind of understand you know, really what was, what's been going on here for the last couple of centuries that unless you do a little bit of digging, you're not going to find. Well, it's interesting. I think that the Haudenosaunee or people, the Longhouse people, the Six Nations, are, we're lucky in one respect that our our small reservation territories that we're still able to maintain are part of our indigenous lands. Whereas I spent a good deal of time in October in Oklahoma at the National Indian Education Association's annual convention and trade show, and I met so many different Native people there who are actually displaced. They were placed during, in, in, in Oklahoma on the, the worst lands possible during the Indian removal period. And for so many of them, they've lost that connection to their indigenous lands, okay? And for many of them, they're sacred lands. And um, so you have to see that there are differences that exist, you know, across indigenous communities in this country. But for us, I guess that's a win that we're still here, okay, that we can still say that, you know, where you and I are sitting right now, this is indigenous Seneca territory. Right. This was, this was, you have to acknowledge that, okay, and that we are still here and we're still able to hold on to our language. We're still able to hold on to our customs and our traditions, where for many people, if you go as far west as California, many of the California tribes don't even know what their indigenous name is. They might be called something like the Santa Ana Mission Indians not even knowing what their indigenous name was, okay? So we've also been lucky, I, I, in another regard, I guess, uh, and, you know, and you can, people can debate me on this. We were at least able to secure treaties with the federal government before the federal government stopped making treaties with, with tribal nations. You know, we have that nation-to-nation -nation relationship, even though we know that the federal government hasn't upheld many of our treaties. The Buffalo okay. Creek Treaty, right? <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. Um, and, you know, in, and even uh, the Canandaigua Treaty. I mean, look what happened at Kinzua. We, the Kinzua Dam was built, that inundated over 10,000 acres of that Allegheny Territory. They burned and bulldozed the houses, okay? Uh, they moved uh, Seneca's to higher ground. So removal's not a good word for us, okay? They um, moved our, our cemeteries, the, it, they 
took away the livelihood of many of our families. The, you know, all the farming areas, the, you know, the fields are underwater. Uh, how does that happen to this day? Right. So, And, of course, with that, like when you, you were mentioning, when you lose your land, you lose your connection to sustainability, correct? Exactly, exactly, definitely. And, you know, you're forced to live in a different way than, than what you were accustomed to. I know that during the time of the, the Kinzuo removal, my mother was the first tribal advocate for the Seneca Nation out the ta- at the Allegheny Territory, and she will tell you it was a very difficult time for our elders who, whose way of living was changed, okay, who were, yeah, sure, they were moved into modern contemporary homes, but that wasn't the value for them. It was the land and, uh, you know, more of their subsistent living that they had been accustomed to that was of value to them. Um, and, and it was a very traumatic period uh, for, for many families. And as you were talking about uh, some of the uh, communities out west that don't, aren't on their traditional lands, what is the impact on those people? I mean, we, you know, I know there are social issues, you know, you know suicide, uh, you know, poverty, things along those lines. What yeah. about that? What, what, I, I, how does that play out? I think that um, for many of us, and not just those you know, in the Midwest or West, we have all gone through periods of really suffering from you know, societal issues, whether it's poverty, suicide, um, and, and others. I think that you know, it's just the trauma of centuries of, of really being so marginalized by a dominant society that the the impact is there. It's the residual effects are still there today. I mean, part of the conversation I was having with your producer earlier this morning, you know, people don't realize that when you travel across reservation territory, you know, there's a reason why the houses look so dilapidated. It's because we're not allowed to get mortgages. What bank would give a mortgage on sovereign territory when they cannot foreclose on our land? Right. And I think that the public at large just doesn't understand that we don't have that luxury of getting a mortgage. And that's where, you know, you know, for us, the gaming industry has at least provided us the revenue where we can, you know, allow our own members to take a mortgage from the Seneca Nation, you know. Um, so the so Seneca those, Nation is granting mortgages yes, now. Yes, we've created a mortgage program. And it's through, improving the housing? Most definitely it's improving the housing. People are allowed to get mortgages, build homes, all right, um, where they hadn't been allowed to before. I mean, we've often often joked among ourselves, you know, why do we see so many mobile homes on, on territory? Well, it's easy to, to foreclose on a mobile home and pull it off territory, you know. Um, but it's not always, you know, the best way to have a home, you know, because they don't last. They certainly don't last. Um, and, you know, the, the gaming enterprises uh, that we've gone into have also allowed us to build even homes that we can rent out to our nation members. You know, different communities have popped up here and there on both the Cattaraugus and Allegheny territories that have improved the housing conditions for our people. It struck me as we were talking about that and and improving the housing. We've had many conversations on this program about Buffalo's East Side, how there is a lack of that. and. And a lot of that came from the history of redlining in this country and not giving, you know, uh, African-American veterans also the option to get mortgages like every other returning veteran. So very similar, you know, circumstances. And But I think the solution is interesting, though, from what is happening on, on the Seneca Nation, is it's a community effort to make sure that to bring that wealth and make make it useful for the general community. Right. I mean, I can see that since we've gone into class three gaming, how 
education is improved. We have beautiful early childhood learning centers for our children. We have beautiful community centers where we can get together for all kinds of community events and sporting events. Um, and we've improved our, uh, our health clinics on both territories. Um, We've, we've built and expanded the infrastructure of the Seneca Nation government that we operate, yes, as a, as a sovereign nation, but when you really look at us, it's like we're operating a, a city or town municipal government with all of the different governmental offices that any city or town would have. So we're, we've become very self-sufficient because of our gaming enterprises. Is there, um, though, a I don't want to say fundamental difference, but is there maybe a philosophical difference in the way some of those structures are set up. I'm just curious ab- about that. I mean, again, I don't, not really uh, totally understanding, not living on the Seneca Nation and, and, and taking advantage of any of those services. But is there a difference uh, of the way maybe the Seneca Nation is going about doing its business? I mean, as compared to other municipalities, or is that something that's very difficult to compare? I don't think that there's a huge difference. I think that the, the focus, however, um, that I think that others could learn from is the focus on community. And I think many municipalities have lost that focus, okay? We really do focus on the needs of our people. We focus on the needs of our elders. What do our elders really need, okay? We focus on the needs of our children, all right? Um, and so uh, I definitely see that it, it's, it's more of a focus on sustaining who we are, sustaining our language programs, okay? So that, because obviously... Uh, the school districts really aren't channeling enough funding to have language taught on a daily basis, uh, probably in the way that they should. Um, and we also have programs that really highlight our customs and traditions uh, at all levels. You know, we think of education more from, you know, birth or pre-birth all the way up to elder. Okay, really? Yeah. We don't think in a, in a K-12 society. Really? Education doesn't end at grade 12. Okay? And it doesn't start <laughs> for, at kindergarten. <laughs> for for <laughs> so. people who look at my, my career, they would say maybe I ended at eighth grade. But maybe just expand on that just a little yeah. bit. I mean, so that is it something that's that's culturally embraced then, the idea that you know, you're a lifelong learner? I do believe that it's something that is culturally embraced, okay? I mean, I'm in my 60s and I continue to learn. I continue to respect my elders. I continue to learn from them, Okay. Uh, when I was serving on the board of directors for Seneca Gaming, I learned from the from the young people, you know, who are my my own son's age, you know, from from what they've learned and their intelligence and their perspective. So, we're we're constantly learning. It's just not as traditional as you know, sitting in a classroom and listening to a teacher. Um, it's it's more more hands on, I would say. Um, but again, the focus is really on helping our people. And um, I think that, you know, we sort of take that philosophy beyond our own territories out into Western New York because we consider Western New York our community as well. And I think that, you know, through our, our gaming corporation enterprises, you can definitely see the impact in Western New York. There are not enough Senecas that could be hired to run our casinos. We employ almost 3,000 people in our properties. At the three properties? At, at the three yeah. properties. There's room for career growth. Okay, from our frontline workers up to our executives, and, and you can see that movement. And you know that you know when our, our our vendors as well. I mean, we certainly have um, deepened the pockets of a lot of our vendors, so the economic impact goes far. Um, I can't imagine you know if New York State didn't you know renegotiate the contract to make it you know satisfactory to both parties. That what will New York State do in in putting three thousand people out on unemployment? 
uh, and putting vendors out of business, okay, food vendors that we work with. I mean, there's a ton of vendors that we work with in New York State. So to, to say that we don't contribute to the economy in western New York State <laughs> would be the, a harsh thing. Uh, so. And I might be touching on a, a flashpoint here it's to okay. a certain extent, but you, when you said vendors, this sparked uh, a thought that somebody brought up to me again, learning as we go here. When New York State, the governor, ordered the freezing of Seneca accounts, that impacted employees' paychecks. It impacted vendors getting paid. It, yes, most definitely. It impacted everything. It impacted our elders' ability to go to the clinic and, and pick up prescriptions. You know, we have a we we work a lot with banks. You know, as a nation government, but you know she's focusing. You know, nation and, and why close everything down? I mean, why would you do that? You're literally stopping the livelihood of so many, not just Senecas, but everybody that works for us, uh, everybody that we do business with. Okay, um, and I don't. I'm not quite sure if the governor at that point in time or her advisors really thought that out, um, the impact of, of what was actually happening. Um, it, and it's pretty harsh. I, I really don't know of any other uh, governor, okay, uh, or legislative, whether it's federal or state, that's ever done something that severe to any tribal nation at this point in time. I cannot think of one. That okay. is quite the statement. That is quite a statement. And, you know, you have to say that, you know, our, our current compact allows us to have exclusivity in gaming. And we're paying a pretty price for that. We've paid millions of dollars to New York State for that. And yet we know that there are uh, other organizations such as Delaware North, where there's a conflict of interest there with the, you know, right. um, that surely would love to move into the Buffalo area and open up a casino. All right. What would that do to our enterprises? Not really sure. What would that do to the Seneca Nation? Well, I can't imagine that it would be a good thing. But we have paid a percentage of our profits to New York State higher than most than any other tribal nation that I can think of. I was visiting a tribal casino in the upper uh, peninsula uh, of, of um, Michigan. Michigan, and they pay 2%. 2%. And they also decide who in the, the re, in the area is going to get that 2%. But they've developed such an incredibly positive relationship with their state and with their local municipality because the local municipality in a very rural, impoverished area realizes that they have jobs. They have jobs at that casino. They have jobs at that casino resort. They have jobs at that tribe's uh, golf courses that they own that they wouldn't have those jobs otherwise in that re region if it weren't for them. So it's not like we're just doing something for a tribal nation. We're doing it not only for the to benefit our tribal members, but it's also benefiting those that in the communities that we live in today. So that is huge. That is huge. So it's it's really learning how to play fairly. You know, we're required by federal law to have a compact, but is that compact actually fair? We'll examine that a little bit more. We're going to probably put that back to the later portion of the show because uh, in coming up a little bit, of, I want to get into boarding schools. So I'm going to kind of uh, sure. warn our listeners perhaps to, to be prepared for uh, an emotional journey here coming up. We're talking with Dr. Lori Quigley, uh, the interim president of Madai University, also former chairwoman of the uh, uh, board of directors for Zeneca Gaming Corporation, and obviously an historian who can share with us a lot of information about the 
uh, indigenous people of Western New York and this territory in which we're sitting on right now, which is uh, traditional Seneca land. We're going to take a break, come back with more. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot, and your money will support high-quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. WNED-PBS can go everywhere you go with the WNED-PBS app. Go to the app to watch shows like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, Frontline, and Compact Science. Even watch on the go with the WNED-PBS live stream and a 24-7 stream of WNED-PBS kids. You can also see the full television schedule and what's on right now from the app. Download the WNED-PBS app wherever you get your apps. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to uh, Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran, uh, joined this hour by Dr. Lori Quigley, the interim president at Madai University, former chairwoman of the board of directors for the Seneca Gaming Corporation, and also member of the Seneca Nation, Wolf Clan. Um, before we get into the boarding schools, your identity. How, talk to about your how you identify. So we are a matrilineal society, and our bloodline is really through our mother. And my mother was a member of the Wolf Clan. The Senecas actually have eight clans. We've got eight clans sort of divided into two groups, the birds and the animals, okay? And it really is very much connected to our our cultural traditions, um, our longhouse upbringing. We, each, you know, clans have certain roles and responsibilities. We get our, our indigenous names through our clans. Um, and uh, so I think it's, it's a really really interesting tradition that's been carried on for, for centuries. And it is, I, I've found it interesting that there is a wolf clan. So that was something that was named after something that was present in this area, which we now know is upstate New York. There hasn't been a wolf around here in... No, but you know what? Wolf is the English term okay. as well. So when you take a look at some of them, I mean, um, you know, uh, it's interesting how the deer clan... Okay, four-legged animals, actually part of the bird group. Really? And, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done on that. Is it the kill deer, you know, which was a bird? Okay. Is it the way that the deer, if you watch the way it runs, it's almost like it's flying through the woods. Okay, but um, again, you know, I think it's it's part of uh, things that are probably lost in translation at some point. Yeah. There's a lot to, to research mm-hmm. there for yeah, sure. I would say. But I know your research, though, has... Um, You've spent a lot of time researching boarding schools. Yes. So I, I basically began my research um, when I was a professor at Buffalo State probably about 20 years ago. Um, my mother uh, was a survivor of Thomas Indian School, and we do refer to those who made it as survivors, okay? But what I could see in my own Native community, and as I was also a young mother, 
the multi-generational impact, the the traumatic impact that still exists in our communities today. And I wanted to learn more about what actually happened, what happened at Thomas Indian School. And as I was beginning my research, um, a professor, uh, Dr. Lawrence Hopman from SUNY New Paltz, actually said to me that the when the state closed Thomas Indian School in 1957, they actually shipped all the records, and they're housed in the New York State archives. And I don't think anybody knew that. Certainly all the survivors that I've talked to from Thomas Indian School did not know that there were even records kept. And when you go to the archives, there are two groups of, of archival materials. One is for the public. Anybody can go and take a look at the superintendent's reports, you know, uh, the school newsletters, um, you know, records that were kept by the uh, food food staff is, you know, uh, all of that. That's for okay. public. But what records that individuals didn't even know, my mother never knew existed, were sealed case files. So when the school, when New York State took it over, at the time it was the New York State Board of Charities, I believe is when they started keeping records of all the, the children who lived there. And the children who lived there, they weren't just from Seneca. They were from all the tribal nations across New York State, all the six nations plus the two Long Island tribes. And I don't think people realize So children that. from Long Island were brought yes, up to Western New York. the Shinnecocks, the Puspataks, yes. And um, each... I was able to get permission from 20 uh, survivors um, through contacts with my mom to get there to open up their sealed case files. Um, and they're, they're quite personal. And what I learned is each person's story is different as to how they got there. Okay. My mother never really knew how she got there. When, what age was she when she got there, would you say? She was, she was five years old. Okay. She was there for 10 years. Um, and, you know, all the records are different. Uh, I, I discovered that uh, some Tuscaroras that I had uh, interviewed were placed there after their parents had been killed. And right from the funeral gravesite, they were taken down there. Okay. I mean, it, the, the, every story is different. Okay. Right? Um, Would you like to expand on your mother's story for us? For my mother's story, my mother was placed in foster care. And um, and she always kept in touch with her foster parents because they really wanted to keep her. But for whatever reason, the state deemed that it would be best to put her in Thomas Indian School. So she ended who, up... Who made those kind of decisions? Somebody working in the state. Yeah. Somebody had that kind of power. Yes. And I would say that the social worker, Frances Kincaid, who was hired by Thomas Indian School, in my opinion, had more power over the children's lives than the superintendent did in her decision making. And you can actually see it in the communications and and what she wrote about my mother that's in my mother's case file. For example, my mother's great aunt, Betty, um, never went to Thomas Indian School, never had her own children, but she adopted children. And my mother could never figure out, why didn't you come adopt me? Well, my, by the time I had opened up my mother's case file, my aunt had pa- my great aunt had passed away. But I found in there communication from my aunt to Frances Kincaid asking if she could take my mom and adopt her. Mm. And for whatever reason, Frances Kincaid made the decision, no, you cannot. But my mother never knew that. And I think my mother always held it against my aunt for adopting other children, but not her. But the answers were right there in that file through those letter exchanges. And there's more 
of my mother's unanswered questions that were answered by documents in that file and to and everything that happened to my mother. My mother never understood why she was selected with other girls her age at the age of 15 to leave Thomas Indian School and go work in what was called wage homes for uh, affluent families. Wage homes? Yes. My mother was actually placed in a wage home, which is the mansion that is currently used and owned by SUNY Fredonia for their president's house. And she was placed there as a maid at the age of 15 without permission of her family her extended family. In fact, her extended family took them a while to figure out where the school had placed her. It was a horrible experience for my mom. My mom passed away in August, and a couple of years before she was placed in a nursing home, my mother asked if I would take her back to that home. I said, you know where that home is? She goes, yes, it's the home of the SUNY uh, Fredonia president. So I, I talked to Dr. Jenny Horvath at that time and arranged for my mom to go and take a look at the house. And we went through the front door, and... Uh, learned that that was the first time she was ever allowed to walk in the front door because she was only allowed to walk in the back door of the butler's area. She, they also built a bathroom for her. So if you remember that movie, The Help, about the um, the African-American woman yep. working for where they built them a separate bathroom, the same thing happened in that big mansion for my mother. She lived in, the, in one of the attics of, of, of the extension of the house. She was never allowed to dine with the family, okay? And she and, had and no choice. She had no choice. And some really severe, hey, hey, some, some hey. severe things happened with, with her there and that family. And uh, t- totally felt uh, isolated and unloved. I think she, she, she I think at, at one point, one Christmas, the way my mother told the stories, I, I believe that it was at that point in time where she felt so alone that, you know, I think suicide definitely crossed her mind. She talks about it, okay? And I think that that whole visit was a way of my mom trying to reconcile with what happened to her. Uh, as a young child. And it was a Methodist minister that my mother finally turned to and asked for help to get her out of that place. So, How long was I, she there? She was there for, for uh, two years. So from 15 to 17? Yes. She was forced to live and work in a uh, place she had no choice in? Yes, exactly. And you know what I discovered in her file? The money that she earned went back to the school. Because the receipts are all in there. The detailed receipts are in my mother's case file that the money went back to the school. So when my mother finally got, you know, was able to pay, to get into Alfred, she went to Alfred State, and she paid her way by working in the registrar's office. There's a letter that she wrote during that time back to Frances Kincaid asking her for money because she needed a winter coat. She needed sanitary supplies as a young woman. And Frances Kincaid wrote back and denied her that. I'd like to know where's all that money that my mother was never able to get. How come it went back to the school? And that's just one example, again, of many that you see that, that's housed in those sealed case files. Other horrific things that happened medically to, to you know some of the individuals that I took a look at in their files. And when you say medically, are we kind of stretching the use of the term there? Uh, yeah. What, what's interesting is that there's little cards that uh, the state had where you would have to sign off the parents' permission, but the handwriting on all of them is the same. I don't think all their parents had the same handwriting, number one. Right. Okay. So that that leads you to be a little suspicious. And, you know, some of the things that happened to the children at that time um, and what they went through, whether they were being used as guinea pigs or whatever, I think often, you know, when I talk to a lot of the survivors, and many of them are are no longer living today, they they were definitely 
convinced that they were used um, as guinea pigs for vaccinations, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see, you know, some some of the operations that they had. Uh, there was no parental permission when they were when they lived there. They were also uh, isolated from their siblings. They were also isolated from families. You know, and there was a lot of heartache, and you know, not understanding why families never came to visit, why they were never allowed to go visit families. They were not allowed to go. They visit. weren't. No, even those. I even, that that happened in my mother's case too, where a great auntie who lived on the west side of Buffalo wanted to have my mother come up for Christmas. She made the mistake of at, of writing to my mother first that she was going to ask Francis Kincaid, okay? And if you you put all the pieces together with the dates of the letter, Francis Kincaid was not happy that my her great auntie had, had asked my mother first before she asked Miss Kincaid. And she Francis Kincaid in her letter back to my mother said, "Well, she hasn't been behaving." Well, then I looked at the anecdotal records and she was Francis Kincaid was great at writing anecdotal records. There was nothing behaviorally wrong noted in my mother's records at that period of time, okay? And yet that was the excuse that she used for not allowing her to go. And she says, it's too bad that you didn't ask me first. She starts to let her out that way. So I said, well, that's the reason that she chose, not that my mother was having behavioral issues in the girls' dormitory, because the anecdotal records prove that she wasn't. Wow. Yeah, so it took me it took me eight hours first of crying just to read through my mother's file the first time I read it, and then hours afterwards of sifting through and analyzing and putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and I did the same for many other families. Some of the families asked me for copies of their files, and others I don't think they just they just don't want to see what's in there. We're going to return to this uh, in just a moment here. As a matter of fact, we're going to take a short break and come back with more with with, uh, Dr. Lori Quigley with us this morning. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. PBS Kids fun and educational content is available wherever you are in Western New York, whenever you want. Live stream the channel at wned.org slash pbskids. And while you're there, you can play games, watch videos from your favorite shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, Molly of Denali, and Alma's Way. And you'll find resources for parents and teachers. Visit wned.org slash pbskids today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to uh, Buffalo What's Next uh, with us, Dr. Lori Quigley, the interim president of Madai University, also former chairwoman of the Seneca Gaming Corporation Board of Directors and uh, also of the Seneca Nation Wolf Clan and a lot of other things as well. Uh, Dr. Quigley, I do appreciate your time here. We're talking about the Thomas Boarding School. I want to make 
the Thomas Boarding School just a little more real here. You're you're outlining some horrific realities here. Let's. It was located on what is now Route 438. Route 438 between Gowanda and Irving on Seneca Nation territory. Um, after following the Buffalo Creek Treaty, when the Senecas were forced to all go back down to Cattaraugus, uh, the missionaries, uh, Laura and Asher Wright, who were Presbyterian, moved their mission back down there. And I believe at that time, I think they probably had you know, good intentions of helping the children and the families out um, because there was such dire, stricken poverty, you know, just rampant through the reservation at that time. And uh, it was named after a Quaker benefactor, um, Philip Thomas, and that's where the name actually you okay. know, came from, Thomas Indian School. It used to be Thomas Asylum uh, for Destitute and Orphan Children, all right? And uh, the survivors always called it Salem as, as, you know, just as, you know, sort of a nickname. Um, and then eventually it was taken over by the state of New York. And eventually in 1957, because of the conditions and the poor education of the children, they actually forced, they closed, they closed, they had closed the, the school. It was a decision that the governor at, the t- at that time had made. How long was it open? It was open well over 100 years, oh which my. is really interesting. Yeah. So thousands of children actually attended there, uh, either as residential schools and some as day students. And the experiences I've learned from the day students is quite different from those who actually live there. I remember looking at one photo in the New York State archives of the dormitory, and I had shown it to my mom. I said, is this exactly what it looked like, a bunch of beds? And she goes, yeah, that's exactly what it looked like. And so um, as she's describing it, she begins to unravel some stories. And one of the stories, she said, well, at night, you know, we would wait for the matrons to go to bed. And uh, sometimes we'd we'd have fun and we'd jump on the beds and laugh, but we'd always get in trouble. But then there were many nights when you could just hear the girls crying, one Mm -hmm. girl crying, one girl crying. there Because they were so lonely and they missed their families and not understanding what happened to them. I think for my mom... For my family, what's really difficult uh, is that uh, just prior to the pandemic, we had to put my mom in a nursing home because she began to get dementia, and which was hard because anybody who was in a nursing home at that time, they just didn't understand what was going on. Okay, So I wasn't able to even see my mom for uh, quite a number of months, um, and I was able then to visit her through windows, through mm-hmm. you know, doorway, you know, glass doors. But I was contacted by um, the staff because they had concerns over my mom. And this is the story behind the concerns. I went to visit, you know, my mom when we were talking to the glass doors, and she goes to me, Laura, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I said, what? Well, last night, those guys in the white coat, they took me outside, and they threw me against the brick wall of the building. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what kind of place have we put my mom in? And then it dawned on me after conversations with her, through her dreams, she was reliving in her dementia what happened to her at Thomas Indian School. And so I had to explain to the staff that, no, she's not telling stories or lies about the staff. She's reliving what happened to her as a child. And because of her dementia, it's too hard for her to break apart, well, is it, was this a dream or is this actual her reality right now in her state of dementia? Sure. So... The saddest thing for my family is having known that my mother's life started in an institution and ended in an institution, you know, and going through much of the same trauma that, you know, we never knew she would go through and have repeated again because of her dementia, you know, and, and, and very, here, very sad. Absolutely. And, and to hear that, 
that notion that you know upon her dementia she flashes back to those early years obviously she was living with those memories yes, throughout her life how exactly. how best can you understand how she coped i think she coped because many of the children there were told that they weren't going to be anything but a bunch of drunk indians mm. they were told that they were told that and sadly for my mom and and you know those that she lived with for many of them, uh, I think she could see it was becoming a reality. Certainly when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, she began taking me to funerals of people I didn't know, but there were people she lived with who that became a, a, a reality for them, a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. But for my mother, she said, I'll be damned if I'm going to let them tell me that this is what's going to happen to me. There's something in her, she doesn't know where it came from, that was set out to prove them wrong. And, you know, when I talked about her files before, I noticed that Frances Kincaid kept track of my mom until she married my father. And my mother never knew she even did that, okay, which is really interesting. Um, but certainly I think that my mother would often tell, you know, her five daughters, she'd say to us, I don't even know how I'm able to raise you. And it was never, I was never raised in a family environment. You know, and she certainly ran our household like an institution. We had our chores. And she posted them every week. You know, we had to make our beds the military style, the way that they were taught. Um, we had to iron, you know, our clothes the way that she was taught because that's what they were taught, right. you know, as, as young women at Thomas Indian School. And she made sure that, you know, uh, the meals were sort of, you know, done a lot of the same. And uh, uh, But that's what she knew. That's what That's what she grew up with. We didn't get the the hugs, the kisses, the I love you because she she didn't she didn't grow up with that. But right. we knew our mom loved us. Okay. We knew, you know, we we learned, you know, through conversations with her, uh, what happened. Um, they were, you know, if any of them were caught speaking the language, you know, they were they were harshly and, you know, severely punished for it. Um, and it, it's really it's really a sad testimony of what happened to people in what we would still call contemporary times. Most certainly. Seriously. Yeah, no doubt. 1957 yes, exactly. is not all that long ago. No, it's not. Um, what about, um, as, as you were talking there, it, it flashed in my mind, what about, though, did she, so for 10 years of her life, she's had her heritage ripped away from her. Yes. The, the, the formative years for her. Did she return to some of that <laughs> after it was over? She actually ended up, after she married my father and they lived um, in the Dunkirk, Fredonia area, they actually moved to the reservation probably when I was about four years old. And interesting enough, my mother went back to what she would call home, okay? And uh, my sisters and I, following my mother, my mother ended up going back, to, um, getting her, her Seneca name, which is Jagonia. She returns. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And, you know, and we were all, you know, went through um, longhouse ceremonies to get our names as well. But I think that there's something probably that happened to her and, and from her understanding that she always wanted to give back to her people. And so she worked for the Seneca Nation um, in different capacities for a number of years. She was also served as the Seneca Nation counselor. She also served as uh, part of the Salonica Lease negotiating uh, team of the council. Uh, when they renegotiated that, she spoke. It was her testimony um, <clears throat> in the you know in Congress that is still used in at UB's uh, Native Studies Indigenous Studies program. Um, 
So she she certainly had an impact, and she was always giving back. And I think that's why probably I am the same way. Okay, uh, my just my hopeful. Yeah, I'm just gonna. I was life. just gonna ask though. Yeah. I mean, did you find inspiration in your oh, mother's most story? Most definitely, most definitely. And my mother and I uh, were very close. We we both. Uh, my mother was the founder of New York State's Indian Education Association. I certainly chaired that association uh, for ten years, if not longer, and I'm still. Uh, associated with that, and and now at the national level, you know, I've had uh, presidential appointment to the National Advisory Council in Indian Education. I currently serve as ombudsperson for National Indian Education Association. So I would say that uh, my mother had tremendous impact on me and my life, and and the direction that I went in. And yet, she saw other examples of her uh, schoolmates who exactly. didn't have such yeah. a fruitful existence, perhaps. And I think that's probably why she became the person she became. She just wanted, she wanted to, to make sure that people could overcome that, you know, her way of giving back to community. She certainly helped out a lot of Native students in New York State at the higher ed level because she also went into higher education administration. She worked at St. Bonaventure for a number of years as uh, their founding higher education opportunity program director. When she retired, she worked uh, as a counselor, guidance counselor at Randolph Academy, which is a, you know, a school uh, district, if you will, that takes in children from across Western New York that aren't successful in other schools. And uh, she fit in really well with those kids. And I can, you can only imagine why. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take one more time out, come back with a few more minutes here with Dr. Lori Quigley. She is the interim president of Madai University. She's also the former chairwoman as of Monday, as a matter of fact, of the board of directors for the Zeneca Gaming Corporation. And we've got a lot to talk about here. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot and your money will support high quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. WNED PBS can go everywhere you go with the WNED PBS app. Go to the app to watch shows like Kleinhand's Gift to Buffalo, Frontline, and Compact Science. Even watch on the go with the WNED PBS live stream and a 24-7 stream of WNED PBS kids. You can also see the full television schedule and what's on right now from the app. Download the WNED PBS app wherever you get your apps. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran uh, here with our final segment with Dr. Lori Quigley today, the interim president of Madai University, member of the Seneca Nation Wolf Clan, and also the former chairwoman for the Seneca Gaming Corporation's board of directors. Uh, if you're interested in, you got a lot of interest here, Dr. Quigley. We, I do appreciate the understanding of the Thomas Boarding School, and that's something hopefully we can revisit with others as we move forward here on Buffalo What's Next. 
But I know you have an interest in preserving the Seneca language. Why is that important? Well, what I've learned about indigenous language is that our entire worldview, our indigenous worldview, and the way that we see things traditionally and our customs are all embedded within the language. I also believe it's the language that helps us to maintain our sovereignty, our right to be a sovereign nation. So um, I've been part of my career, I spent time as a classroom teacher, department chair, professor, and my PhD is actually in language learning and literacy. So what I've done over the years is to work with our language programs, our indigenous language programs, and just um, teaching them how to maintain our language and using best practices with pedagogy, et cetera. Um, as an example of that, I was able to secure uh, a million-dollar research grant from the federal government in working with the Seneca Nation at one point, and that really helped to stabilize and grow a lot of what we were doing with our own Seneca language programs. And also, we invited our friends from Tuscarora and Tonawanda Seneca to join us in that effort as well, because I do believe it's critically important that we maintain those languages, especially when we live in such a monolinguist culture which is the United States, right. which for whatever reason has never had an emphasis on, you know, knowing more than one language like other countries do. Right. Okay. And a lot of school districts, foreign yeah. language departments are shrinking or right. even getting uh, And it's eliminated. interesting how you use that word foreign language because I don't see Seneca as a foreign language. Our indigenous Fair languages enough. are not foreign. Right. Okay. We were the first here. Okay. All right. And so I've actually been working with a group from across New York State and then here in the western New York region to finally uh, get the regents and the commissioner to approve a pathway for indigenous language teacher certification, and we're almost there. Okay, okay. So we're hoping uh, to go through an FAQ process in the spring. Um, we finally got the ear of the commissioner, um, and uh, it, it's taken us years and years and years to get there. So how is it that the first language here, we don't have a certification area? <laughs> right. You know, and it puts our language teachers on par with other language teachers, with other certified teachers in a school district. So we've always been kept at a disadvantage because we don't have that opportunity. It hurts a school district in their reporting when you've got a Seneca or an Onondaga who's certified in another area but teaching outside of their certification area. Okay, and then we have you know indigenous language teachers, not like a Spanish teacher who's got textbooks and materials. They're creating their own pedagogical materials because there's Seneca is not a broad language like other languages that are being taught. Right. So uh, my work has not only been here among Haudenosaunee um, language groups, but I've also been hired through. Um, through Health and Human Services, there's the Administration for Native Americans that also gives out language grants. And so I've worked with different tribal nations across the country. I spent time, for example, out in Menominee in Wisconsin helping them. And when I first got there, I listened to their opening prayer, and I said, oh, my goodness, you're actually an Algonquian language. And go, how do you know that? Well, after a while, you, <laughs> yes, develop, you, know that? you develop an ear for language, <laughs> okay. okay? And not that I would ever be able to learn to speak it, but right. you can actually understand the nuances. I mean, I can hear the difference, for example, between a Ganawage Mohawk speaker and a speaker from Akwesasne because Ganawage has such a French influence on their language today. Okay. But you develop an ear for it. 
you know, but at least I've been blessed to have the credentials and the education to be able to give back. I mean, I've just been asked again by the Seneca Nation uh, uh, Language Department to to help them again with, you know, providing more pedagogical training, which is needed. So. When I was in high school, uh, um, I had an option to, I think, let's see, I had an option of uh, Spanish, French, maybe even German. I don't think anybody took German. Latin was another one as uh, part of it. And but a big uh, the one of the selling points of Spanish is this is going to be the language of of uh, the second language of the right. United States, and it's going to be an opportunity. Whatever. I mean, that, that's the point. That's neither here nor there. But I get my my question for you though is, what would we understand, or what would we get from understanding taking Seneca as a second language? Well, Seneca is actually offered in uh, the schools where our Seneca children attend, all the way up to the regents level, which people don't realize. So Gowanda, Silver Creek, Lakeshore, Salamanca, any student, Seneca or non-Seneca, can take Seneca. Akron, Akron, I'm not sure if they do. Okay. Okay. Um, And I've done a lot of work with Akron, so I apologize for not knowing that. But um, I think that, you know, you learn language... uh, to expand your ability to critically think, your ability to write better, your ability to learn the history, culture, customs. I'm sure if anybody's taking a, a language class, whether it's French. I mean, I took a lot of French, okay? I learned about the French culture, the right. French history, food. You learn all of that when you're learning language as well. So it's conversational language that's being taught in the schools. But our Seneca Nation language programs are also teaching ceremonial language. And ceremonial language is very important for us in order to maintain our ceremonies, you know. And I don't want to call them religion, religious, because for us it's not a religion. It's a way of life. It's our traditional ways of being. And it's our intent and our ability to maintain our traditional ways of being as a sovereign nation. And I think that's what's so critically important about making sure we're able to maintain our languages. And certainly we've got programs at the Seneca Nation. I think one of the most powerful ones that I've seen lately out at the Cattaraugus Territory is they're teaching babies Seneca as the first language. So for the first time in decades, we're producing first language speakers. Because up until this point, I've actually been teaching Seneca language teachers second language acquisition strategies. Sure. Whereas now we're finally getting a generation of fluent first language speakers, which is critically important. And so the assumption is then at home, that's what they're hearing. Yes, yes. At home, in school, they're working with the elders who are still speaking language. Um, And it's really hard because, you know, we've got Seneca language teachers who've chosen to be language teachers who for many of them, Seneca is their second language. So not only are they still improving their own language skills, oral and written, okay, they're at the same time, they go back and they turn around and they teach what they're learning. I, I give them a lot of credit. Absolutely. It's very difficult, yeah. I mean, as you, especially yeah. when we get all the right second yeah. languages. But I think, you know, just to go back to the top of the hour, that's why for us, the revenues that we've been able to, to get from our gaming uh, industry have helped to supplant those programs, have helped to grow those programs so that we're not relying on outside funding to maintain these very critically important programs for for Seneca. So I was going to ask that, and it almost sounds like you've answered this. So it's being embraced 
by the people of the Senate condition. They, they want this language to endure. Yes, definitely. And even the tribal government, I mean, I certainly appreciate former President Matt Pagels, who's now our treasurer. You know, he would do, you know, weekly by weekly broadcast through Seneca Media. And I love the fact that he would open in Seneca and close in Seneca. Okay, just to show that, yeah, the tribal government, our nation counselors and executives are, are equally, um, they, 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 they've shown that this is really important for our community, for our people. Um, and you see language throughout our communities, which is wonderful. Uh, how does it rate as a, a, learn, a learnable language? How's that for a choice of, of English words right there and compared to French or Spanish? I, think, I mean, is it something that, uh, that well, is I on think, the same par or what? I think it's, it's more difficult to learn um, as an adult. I'll say it as a, oh, yeah. an adult because I've been taking language classes. I mean, I can certainly introduce myself. I mean, there's things that, and I know what I'm saying, okay, but... It's not a romantic language. You know, it's not a romance language. It's not a Germanic language. It's, it's nothing like English. So it's more like learning Vietnamese, okay, um, where the, the nuances and the ups and the downs, and it's, it's, it, it's such a different language that it makes it more difficult, I think, for adults to understand and, and to learn. We need to get to the point of preserving our languages to the point that people are dreaming in Seneca and not in English. Do you ever dream dream in Seneca? Not yet. No. Sadly. Got a little ways to go, do you? I got a ways to go. So when did you uh, when did you personally uh, were you picking up early in your life or not uh, necessarily or? When I was young we had very little language uh, taught. And again, this is early 70s when I was in school. Um, and we didn't have those programs. We have those programs now, both on territory and in the school district, okay? Um, so it really wasn't until I was a professor at Buff State when I really began working with the indigenous language teachers, both at the Seneca Nation and, you know, and then through the grants that I had written for the Seneca Nation. I've written the millions of dollars of grants just to help with this, okay? And this was all pre-gaming, Okay, um, so we needed to rely on grants uh, to run to run these programs, and it's really at that point in time that I worked with a woman who lived on the west side of Buffalo, um, Pearl Smith, um, whom I loved, and we had so much fun uh, just going to her house, and she taught language Seneca language out of her home, and she was very instrumental in working with us on that research grant that I got because I was um, really teaching a a a, a model that was. Uh, developed out at UC Berkeley by Leanne Hinton, Master Apprentice Model, where our elders were the masters of the language mm. and our teachers were the apprentices, okay? So that's what I was teaching to our our language program at that time. You mentioned uh, just a couple of mo moments ago about uh, referring back to the top of the hour. I'm going to kind of refer back to my, my original question, and, but just to, uh, twist it just a little bit. Are you hopeful for not just the Seneca Nation, and for indigenous peoples, but for a greater merging and understanding of those cultures. I am extremely hopeful. I can only be hopeful, okay? And, you know, we talk about, you know, the fact that the Seneca Nation has to renegotiate and is currently renegotiating a, uh, a new uh, Class three gaming compact with the state of New York. I'm hopeful, too, that our governor, Kathy Hochul, will actually see she's a Western New Yorker. She's got to sit back and say, wow, there is tremendous impact, you know, that we bring to the economy, to the livelihoods of people here in Western New York. 
And I think that people are beginning to stand by us. And that's why we have that campaign, you know, hashtag stand by Seneca, because it is important for people to understand our history. Our campaign has actually started with our history, who we are in this region, okay, who we were, who we still are, okay. And, and you know, leading into that, that economic impact and, you know, how important we are here. And I, I really do, I, I am hopeful that she will see that. And it's just really uh, coming to a resolution of a fair compact. What is fair? Dr. Lori Quigley, I appreciate your hour with us this morning on Buffalo What's Next. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Dr. Lori Quigley is the interim president of Medina University, the former chairwoman of the board of directors for the Seneca Gaming Corporation. And this is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.